Hi, and welcome to Embark, where we talk about change, where we've been, how we ended up here, and where we're going next. I'm Liz Solar, and one of the great taboos remaining in society is talking about mental illness. We don't want to hear about it. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to know you have it. At least according to a recent Forbes article, which states, 47% of Americans believe that you are weak if you seek therapy, which in itself is kind of depressing. That statistic aside, there is one other disturbing trend in this country, and that is the rise in suicide among kids 5 to 11 years old. Let that sink in for a moment. We're going to talk about this with John Madelman. He's a mental health counselor who works with adolescents and helps parents understand their kids. He's also passionate about suicide prevention. John, when you told me about the numbers of young children who kill themselves, it was beyond my comprehension. Truly, I lost sleep over it. Could you please share some insight or give us some background? Yeah. So, of course, we think of kids 5 to 11. These are young children. You know, even contemplating suicide, letting lo- let alone a suicide attempt, is mind-boggling. It's upsetting. And not only are those numbers up, but for Black youth age 5 to 11, that group has the most increase in terms of suicidal ideation and completed suicide. So this is frightening. We know Black youth in general are up over 70%. So this is really scary to us now. And of course, you know, the pandemic has been really easy on young people's bodies, relatively speaking, but it's been devastating upon their mental health. You know, going back to why there's such a large number or a larger percentage of Black children who take their own lives, do you have any insight on yep. reasons why? Yeah, we have, a, we have some information. So we know that exposure to racism actually increases suicidal ideation, the thought of suicide. We know that poverty is correlated with suicide. So we know that this impacts uh, groups like, you know, uh, black groups, for example, you know, in higher numbers than say white groups. Um, So these things we have some information on, but we don't have all the information. And interestingly enough, during the pandemic, there was a, a prediction that suicides would increase. I actually thought it would be the opposite. And I want to tell you why. One of the most protective factors we know around suicide is having eyes on someone else. During the pandemic, we're home more. We have eyes on everyone more than we've ever had. I believe post-pandemic, we will have, sadly, an explosion of suicide that will be devastating to all of us. And, and is that pent-up trauma? Is that a feeling of hopelessness? I, you know, I think of suicide as being the, the last resort, you know, when nothing in life really seems to work. And maybe, maybe it's not a matter of wanting to take your life. It's just not wanting to live like this anymore. Yep. One of the, one of the mantras about suicide is it's not that people want to die. It's that they can't figure out a way to go on living. And we know about this from tragedies that happen. Like, for example, in Puerto Rico, the hurricanes We know that suicide rates increased. People lost their lives. People lost their homes. People lost their livelihood. And they didn't want to die. They just couldn't figure out how could their life go on. So this was really traumatic to them. And, you know, after COVID is over, and by that I mean a more normal way of life, we're never going to get back to our old way of life, that it's not going to be that everyone's going to feel happy and everyone will feel liberated and great. There will be what we call PTSD post-traumatic stress disorder, because we're living through trauma right now. And there is no timeline around trauma. 
How much do you feel that, you know, recent social slash political circumstances are adding to that angst? Very much. And I'll give you a very concrete and sad example. So we all know what happened in Washington in early January, you know, the attack upon our capital. We already know, uh, documented that two of the police have taken their lives by suicide. Exposure to traumatic events increases your risk in significant ways. So we have to think about this in terms of obviously the people who are there, but the people who are watching that, who are traumatized by it. You work with parents a lot. You work with adolescents. What are you hearing these days from parents? Because as you said, they're spending a lot of time with their kids. What are they observing? Well, parents are really worried about their kids. They're worried their kids are learning academic things. They're, they're worried their kids are, are not getting uh, the social things that they used to get. So they're very worried about that. And that anxiety is increasing. And of course, kids know that they're living with their parents. And, you know, anxiety is highly correlated with depression and depression with suicide. So these things are very real. Um, uh, as you stated, most people don't get help uh, for reasons that uh, baffle me, because I see that as very positive. I always use the example well, if you broke your leg, would you wait two days, two weeks, two months, two years, or never to get help? That's ludicrous. But that's what we do around depression. That's what we do around anxiety. That's what we do. People who are suicidal, they don't get help. And they don't get help because they don't think they can be helped. They don't feel that anything will ever change in their lives. But we're also talking about a population, as you said, if it is um, you know, a Black population, a young Black child who may be living in poverty who every day of their lives, they may be trying to figure out where their next meal is coming and add to that any tension that's going on in their family. How are they able to reach out and get help? Well, they can't. We know that in lower income areas, uh, minorities, the access to mental health is you know far less than if you have in say white areas. So we know that access for mental health is important. And you know, the very early stages make a difference too. Parents who talk to their kids around mental health, who support their kids in mental health, who understand the importance of self-care are building not only tools for then, but tools for later when their kids are really in a tough situation. And what do they do and where do they go? Denial is a powerful thing. And when you first told me about the rising numbers of suicide in, in young children, it's something that I don't want to believe. And I'm pretty sure if I don't want to believe it and I don't have young children, what is it like for a young parent to even wrap their heads around the possibility if they see their child feeling depressed or anxious and feeling nervous about our kids? Because that's what we do as parents. We, we spend a lot of time worrying. How are they able to help their child during this time? And kids say crazy things sometimes, like, I'm going to kill myself. You know, they get very dramatic. Do we take that seriously? Well, first of all, parents uh, feel that if I talk to my child about suicide, it's going to plant the seed. You imagine if a kid's like in a good place and you're talking to your child about suicide in age and stage appropriate ways, and they're not suicidal. And they say, you know what? I hadn't thought about that, but I think I'll try it today. No, of course, that's not going to happen. So we really have to work with parents, and I do that a lot, to talk to their kids in ways which are positive. And those are conversations start out like, 
you know, what do, what do you do when you're sad? What's going on inside your brain? How do you get to a better place? They're very simple conversations we have to have. We're not going to talk to a five-year-old and say, have you ever thought about killing yourself? No, that's really not appropriate. But let's talk about sadness and what they can do to self-soothe, what they can do to reach out, how they can tell their mom or dad or teacher or therapist, like, I'm not feeling right without feeling shame, without feeling guilt about it. Most of the kids you talk to are are older kids, um, adolescents, perhaps college age. Are are you actually seeing um, either through direct contact with younger kids or their parents? Are are you talking to kids who are younger? Yeah. So I've talked with kids of all ages. You know, the the group that I'm worried about now, right now during the pandemic is the 18 to 24 year olds, because we know that 25% of that group, 25, one in four have contemplated suicide during the pandemic. Can you imagine that? You see four young kids, 18, 19 years old, walking down the street, and one in four has contemplated suicide. We know that these are dangerous numbers that we're flirting with, and we know that this will translate into more suicides. Interestingly enough, in 2019, and the official statistics are not out, suicide rates declined for the first time in a decade. We were shocked at this. I think in 2020, 20, they will increase in 21 and 22, because it's not as if the pandemic's, quote, over or return to more normal way of life, and then everyone is going to end their life. But I think this will play out over years, because as I said, post-traumatic stress disorder doesn't have a timeline. And uh, I think this will play out over the next couple of years, and it's frightening. When we talk about like the rise in suicide among kids that are 18 to 24, because let's face it, they're kids, we're, we're parents of... <laughs> older kids. And there's a really long line to adulthood, uh, a very long path, plus the fact that that frontal lobe isn't fully formed. How much does impulsivity, you know, not really getting how the world works, or perhaps for those who are more insightful, knowing all too well how the world works, how can we help kids get over that impulsivity to slow down and, and make better decisions? Yeah, well, impulsivity certainly plays a role, but it's a much more minor role than we think. When there is a completed suicide, say a a 22-year-old, I'm just picking an age arbitrarily, we know that there probably have been prior attempts, each one more and more lethal as we go along. And also, one of the best things we can do in our home, in our country, is to really make access to means to end your life very difficult. So, for example, states that have more lax gun control laws, like Vermont, which is right north of Massachusetts, they have twice the completion rate as compared to Massachusetts because their gun control laws are not as restrictive as Massachusetts. So we can do a lot as parents beyond conversation and limit access. In a lot of households, they do not have guns. And particularly in our part of the country, there may not be as many guns or gun usage as in other parts of the country. However, kids are still uh, successful in that suicide attempt. I keep coming back to, I'm I'm still incredulous, like, how does a young child of a five-year-old say, I'm sorry, I can't take it anymore. I'm checking out. What goes into that? What, and I'm not trying to be instructive about this, but but how are they doing this? Yeah, so let's go back to terms. So use the word successful. We want to say completed suicide because not a success. And a lot of people in suicide work say it's the perfect storm. I don't like that at all. This isn't, there's nothing perfect about it at all. So we know that young brains are highly impressionable. They're highly reactive. You know, we also know that we as adults can play a major role in impacting them. 
So everyone feels sad once in a while, but when you look at sadness in terms of length and depth, and when I say length and depth, I'm talking about depression, we can play a role in identifying what's going on. Maybe there's a biological component in identifying how we can help, in talking to a school guidance counselor who can be impactful. And every person needs someone in their life who is a fan of theirs, meaning a fan likes you when you're not at your best, a fan cheers for you when you're not doing so great. People feel people who feel connected, and that's what I, I want to underscore, that perceived connectedness really put themselves in safer places. If you perceive you're not connected, and you can have a million people around you who say they're connected to you, but your own perception, that's hard. Also, when we know that there's more misery and more pain than hope, that is a lethal combination for self-injury, cutting, burning, ingesting, that sort of thing, and also suicide. Thank you for clarifying terms around completed as opposed to successful. Yeah, that sure. That's really helpful for me and for anybody listening. There are kids who cut. There are kids who might do some self-harm, who are self-punishing. Are they on track to perhaps uh, take their own yeah. lives, or is that a whole different It's track? a really good question. Well, the answer is yes to both of those. So we know that kids who self-harm actually do it for a reason, and a good reason to them. They feel a measure of optimism, measure of control. It expresses outwardly, say, by a cut on their arm or cuts on their arm, the pain they're feeling inside. And they tell us that they'd rather feel pain than nothingness, than, than numbness. We also know there is an overlap for suicide. So we know that the people who attempt or have completed suicides, a high percentage of them have self-harmed. But just because you self-harm doesn't mean you're going to end your life. And, you know, self-harm is a very repetitive thing. It happens more in women uh, than in men. Men uh, by suicide have higher completion rates, even though women attempt suicide three to four times as often as men. Men tend to use more lethal means like guns, for example. Um, and that's why they have a higher completion rate. So there is an overlap, but um, it is not if you uh, self-harm that you will automatically be someone who will be attempting to end your life. The substitute for actual physical connection with people have, has been screens. I mean, and screens have been on the rise, you know, way before COVID. How much is the internet playing into, or the media playing into this rise in suicide among children? Yeah, well, you know, in the old days, I'm talking about literally 12 months ago, you know, we talked about the, the internet being a highly negative thing. You know, people seeing images, whether the physical images or lifestyle images online, and they're living their life in real time. And that gap between the two, for some kids who are in pain, seems so large that, that they literally give up. Now we look at screens a little bit differently. Now it is a connection. So, but it has to be the right sort of connection. And parents really need to dig in. Instead of saying, you can't be online or you can't do this, parents need to sit down at the computer and say, Tell me what you're doing online. Tell me why you like this. Explain this technology. Because some of the technology is now critical to connecting kids. At the same time, everyone is fatigued. Oh, my goodness. Nobody wants to do another Zoom meeting. Nobody wants to be online anymore. We're all suffering from a lot of uh, fatigue about that. And that fatigue, of course, translates not just in a personal life, but in what kids are doing in school. Like they're just so sick of being on Zoom in school. I see it. I see it with some adolescents that I know they're they're really bored. They want they want that interaction. They actually want to go back to school, which is not the norm in, in normal yeah. times. But, you know, what is? What are things that parents can do? How can they be more involved? What can they look for in their child? Because as, you know, 
as I said, we have a lot of denial. What can they really look for and, and accept as a red flag? Yeah, well, the very first thing is that moms and dads and caregivers, you're captains of the ship. So you need to be in a good place. Imagine this. You know, when we're on an airplane. OK, we're not on airplanes too much anymore. But when you're on an airplane with a child and they say if the cabin should lose pressure and a mask should come down, put your mask on first, especially with young children. So I say to parents, put your mask on first. What's the mask? Your self-care, you know, things you're doing to keep yourself well, your own equilibrium. That will put you in a position to see the world, to see your children, to identify when they're struggling. So put your mask on first, parents, and then you can help your children. What are some things, and some parents will say, well, wait a minute, I'm, you know, I'm working full time. I'm really trying to balance all of this stuff, home life and work life. Where's the time for self-care? I guess that's a whole other conversation. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard because parents say, if I added up all the hours in the day, I need to work, care for my kids, make lunch, all that. It's like 50 hours a day. It like doesn't work. I guess I would say this: self-care needs to be number one. It will make you a better employee. It will make you a better person. It will make you a better mom or dad or caregiver. And it's not indulgent. It's not selfish. Some people say, well, I don't want to focus on myself. I care about my kids so much. I would say, if you care about your kids so much, think about yourself. You are the captains. They're looking at you. They're looking at you for all sorts of norms. They're looking at your tone, your actions, what you do. So let's get to a good position for ourselves. And that will have more than a trickle-down effect. It will have a monumental effect on our children. Can you name any behaviors that might be particularly disturbing or, or maybe some things that are overlooked that a parent can take a look at? Yeah, so these are really hard. Parents ask me all the time, if my child wants to take a mental health day from school, should I let them? I've gotten that question a lot. And I always say, you remember how teachers used to give like coupons for like no homework night? What I would do if my kids were in school, I give my kid one or two coupons, you know, for, for the semester and say, here it is. You use this coupon when you're really having a tough day. Why do we do that? Well, we want to give people control. Remember, a lot of this time in our lives now is lack of control. We can't control our anxiety. We can't control our depression. We can't control even being in school. So let's give them the coupon and let them use it and say, look, if you're using it, I'm going to take that very seriously. And that's a very good thing to do. You know, the other thing is let's give our kids license to talk about their worries. Oftentimes as parents, we're rushing in, you don't mean that, or you'll feel better tomorrow, or or we're fixing things. You know, a child says something, we're rushing in to fix things. I know a lot about this because I'm a fixer parent, right? So let's designate a worry time. I don't know, you know, that we have during the day where, you know, your kids can talk about the things that upset them, that worry them, because the most powerful tool we have is conversation. You know, it's very cathartic, getting things off of our shoulders, that sort of thing. So let's do those sort of conversations and let's parents, and I'm talking to myself too, let's shut up a little bit. <laughs> let's let our kids talk. Whatever they say is fine. When my son Jake was born, my daughter, we brought him home from the hospital and my daughter, Jesse was three. And I said to Jesse the first night, let's say two great things about having Jake and two really bad things. So she did that. She says, he's so cute. I love having a brother. And the bad things were mom's not around anymore and he cries a lot. Okay. So that I was giving her license to do that. By the second night, I said, Jess, let's do that game again. She says, dad, I don't need it. I love him. So, you know, every kid has their own timetable, but I was giving her license to be critical of, of the new situation where otherwise I don't think she would or she didn't, she didn't want to upset me and kids don't want to upset their parents. 
Right. What is it? The two most dishonest words that we use in life is I'm fine. You know, we want to. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, show the brave face. Um, What is it? If you don't have anything good to say, don't say anything at all. So we're so programmed to be optimistic and extroverted and everything's just great that to reveal that things aren't great feels like a lowering of a status. Yeah. And again, they don't want to burden parents. You know, they see their parents struggling maybe in their own work, their parents being tired. and They don't want to add something else to their parents' plate. I get it. That's wonderful. And that's lovely. Let's get some resources. If a parent suspects that there's something off about their child that perhaps Perhaps their child is talking about harming themselves or actually doing that. What can they do? What resources are available? Yeah. So the first call is guidance counselors in a school. I mean, let's think about guidance counselors. They are struggling themselves, but they like helping. So by calling a guidance counselor in your school, you're actually helping them and helping yourself. If someone broke into your home, you would probably dial 911 very shortly. In fact, in 2021, If you have a concern about suicide for yourself or your child, you'll only have to dial 988. It's a suicide emergency number. Why? Because we have 45 completed thousand completed suicides every year. We need this emergency number. Absolutely. So guidance counselors, there's some emergency numbers um, you can do. Many in Massachusetts, if you live in a certain town, um, there's something called the William James Interface Referral Network. It's free. They will find you three therapists when you tell them about your insurance and your needs. Uh, and they that is their job. That's what they do. But a lot of parents suffer. They don't share. Remember when we were kind of meeting other parents on the playground and we were talking about, oh, do you know a babysitter? What's the best diaper? What's the best this? What's the best that? We were openly talking about it. But conversation comes to a screeching halt when we talk about mental health and our kids. Let's talk about that again. It's a great question to ask a friend like, oh, you know, do you know a good therapist? Because my son is really struggling. And maybe that person will say, my son struggled last year and this was a great therapist who changed his life. So let's actually normalize it and make it okay to talk about mental health in the same way we talk about diapers and babysitters and all the other things that parents tend to talk about on the playground. Yeah, it it is a subject that people don't want to talk about. And someone has to be first to break the ice on the topic. And we noticed because we had a child who struggled that once we told people, we heard so much back. It was such a relief. It was such a comfort and so much support that it actually strengthened our resolve to get our child the help that they needed. Yeah, that's a lovely story. And one I've heard many times. Absolutely. So it takes some courage. I understand that. But I'll tell you, if you take that step of being more open and being more honest, I think you'll be rewarded. And I'm really glad you shared that story. I think it's important. Before we end this conversation, do you have any optimism about, uh, you know, mental health for, (laughs) I don't know, for the world and for children in particular? Well, right now it's been really harsh. The CDC report said that uh, 40% of Americans are dealing with a mental health situation right now. And that was from June. So it's certainly higher now. So for the short term, this is just gonna be really hard. But we also know, as I said, in 2019, suicide rates decreased ever so slightly. And I think that's an indication we're talking about it more. This was taboo, as you mentioned. So I think there is some optimism down the road, uh, but we have to put time and money to it. And that perhaps one of the best silver linings about COVID is the re-emphasis on mental health knowing that it's important, 
talking about it, feeling okay about it, taking the risk to talk about it. So I've done, I think, 110 webinars, like literally all over the country, talking about these things. I don't know how many people have been all of them. I know I had over a thousand on one of them. And I'll bet you of those thousand people, plus 750 at least, have never talked to their kids about mental health. What I'm trying to say to them is, please take that risk. You'll be rewarded. And I think that has payoff down the line. But in the short term, you know, it's going to be rough. We have a lot of protective factors here in terms of, you know, good communities and good guidance and therapists. But short term, my own opinion, sadly, is it's it's going to be a rocky road for a while. Ah, well, strap ourselves in and get ready for a bumpy ride. John, thank you so much for coming in today and talking about this. It's really a conversation that, that needs to be had and it needs to continue. Yeah, I appreciate you having me here. I always love talking to you. And uh, any way that uh, anyone gets information out, I think what you're doing, Liz, is fantastic, is so important. The little things are the big things. And if one person is listening to this and it changes how they deal with their child, changes their life for themselves, that all matters. We just try to work on our little corner of the universe. And you're right. It's it's one-to-one. It's one person at a time. If we can help one person, then we haven't done all of our job, but we it's a good start. Right. Thanks again. Thanks, John. Take care. If you have a story of change, want to talk about something happening in society, there are a lot of things happening. And a lot of them are changing. We want to hear about it if it's a personal story or if it's a bigger societal story. Uh, I've found that the universal is personal and the personal is definitely universal. Please contact me at Liz at EmbarkThePodcast.com. Looking forward to hearing from you. In the meantime, thanks for listening.